0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here is your host, Moyes Jiwa. At the age of 24, Orion Falvey took on the challenge of not only providing a healthcare service, but a healthcare service in a rural and remote area. Here to tell us all that he learned from that experience is Orion Falvey. Orion, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to spend time with you. When we were introduced by our mutual friend, Gabe Charbonneau, I was taken aback at your youth, given that you have such a big interest in organizing healthcare. And so I felt I was compelled to have this conversation with you. But before we go into the journey, tell us a little bit about you, Back in the day, back when you were at business school, what were your hopes and dreams then?
1: I'd like to go back a little bit further to my upbringing, which I feel very fortunate by how I was raised and the role models that my parents served for me. I grew up in a small town in Alaska in southeast Alaska, about two thousand people and My dad is a commercial fisherman and a boat builder, and my mom is a music teacher and a massage therapist. And what was so incredible and such a role model for me was not their professions, but it was the example they provided for choosing your own definition of success in life and what matters in life and how to choose your own path and tune out some of what society feeds us as how we're supposed to live and also how to do it in a way that works for yourself and makes the the world a better place around you. And so I feel really grateful to have this and still have this very solid support and example of challenging the the status quo way of living from my parents in in Southeast Alaska. I kind of stumbled into social entrepreneurship, this field, which combined my interest in creating my own space to work in. Um, I didn't necessarily know I wanted to start my own company, but I just had this almost subconscious desire to design my own environment and space. And then, so social entrepreneurship combined this ability to create something that aligned with my own beliefs and values, and then also to make a positive impact. And so when I first entered business school and started studying entrepreneurship, I didn't know about social entrepreneurship, that there was this growing field of um, using business as a force for positive social change in the world. And it was pretty impactful when I discovered that. And um, I, I immediately started thinking of avenues that might open up for me in this space and kind of knew this was my calling. I wasn't sure what industry or where it would take me. I did have the opportunity to participate in a fellowship in Phnom Penh, Cambodia my senior year of of school, and that was absolutely influential. It was a community development organization that worked in rural communities in Cambodia, and we had a small health clinic. We provided micro loans to women entrepreneurs, and we had a rice bank that loaned rice to families if they had a poor yield um, that they could then pay back. And it was just all about pragmatic kind of community driven small-scale local ways to support some really complex challenges as I discovered as a 21-year-old then of, you know, these systemic issues are, I mean, they can they can burn you out. But I knew it was I knew it was my calling. And so I got back from this fellowship in Cambodia and returned to Eugene, Oregon. And there's the opportunity to create a team and present at Oregon's first ever social business challenge and Muhammad Yunus the known as the founder of microfinance and a Nobel Peace Prize winner someone who in my research of social entrepreneurship I had read several of his books he was going to be the keynote speaker in Portland Oregon and so that got me excited and I responded to this email prompt of hey University of Oregon students, let's get a team together and present at the social business challenge with the prompt of coming up with a scalable model that solves a local problem. Me and five other students met several times and we brainstormed what kind of local problems, challenges we wanted to focus on for this business challenge contest. And we are we had a professor that helped guide us and he was a professor who had just started some social business courses at the University of Oregon and his advice to us was go for something big and you know this is this is a couple months of time see where it takes you but go for something big and cuz we were thinking about starting a a program to reuse food waste or um, we, I mean, we were just brainstorming a wide range of social challenges and, and healthcare came up. And I grew up in a, in a rural community in Alaska. And I said, you know, let's focus on perhaps let's look at some data and, and look at where healthcare is needed most. I think it might be rural communities that don't have access to quality care. And so that's what launched what has become Orchid Health which today, eight years later, is a network of four rural health clinics and school-based clinics with a team of just over 60 doctors, NPs and PAs, mental health clinicians, community health workers, RNs, MAs, patient support specialists. And I want to share a couple of l- big lessons learned along this journey. So going back to your question of how am I where I'm at today? How did I get into this? I'm 32 years old now. so I've been doing this about 10 years. Our clinics have been open for eight years. But so there's a lot of lessons. I mean I, we started a healthcare organization. My co-founder and I and we weren't clinicians and we weren't experienced entrepreneurs or healthcare administrators. And one thing that has really stuck with Orchid health through the, the experience of founding Orcid, was this, we were forced to come to terms with the fact that we did not have the answers, and we couldn't even act like we had the answers, being two 23-year-olds starting a healthcare organization. And what we could do, every person we hired, initially knew more than we knew about what we were trying to do. And that's a core value of our organization today, is embracing a learning environment and showing respect and respecting every team member's lived experience, professional experience, education that they bring to the table. And it's created this culture at ORCID from day one of showing respect and really being intentional about hearing team members' voices and designing this together versus a top-down, do as I say, command and control type model I didn't know this at the time that we were I didn't know much about organizational design and hierarchical structures versus self management structures in organizations. I didn't know much about autonomy versus kind of predict and control, planning and governance. These are all things I learned about over the last 10 years that connected with my values and with what we were creating at Orchid and so I was able to learn and apply some of these principles one one last thing i apologize this is a long initial answer over these past eight years was the realization and the learning that the healthcare work environment is a really difficult work environment what it looks like in practice we were operating a rural health clinic in a very under-resourced community with a pretty complex patient base. And I was the front desk team member for a while. I was the clinic manager for a while. And we had, I think we had almost 100% turnover in our first year and a half. And we opened our second rural health clinic in another very under-resourced community, and we had, I think, 50% turnover. And so about three or four years in, I made this pretty intentional decision that we needed to make taking care of our caregivers and our culture our number one priority. And if we want to improve health outcomes, if we want to revolutionize healthcare, create healthy rural communities, it really starts with taking care of our caregivers and our clinicians. And so we created this model. We knew about the quadruple aim, which the triple aim came from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Don Berwick physician published a paper that called out we need a fourth aim which is taking care of our clinicians and we decided after our experience of what it looks like to work in healthcare and how stressful of an environment it is we decided the order of those aims matters and so we created this four pillar framework with our pillar 1 being taking care of our caregivers and it's employee happiness and well-being and we created a framework that all of our team members could understand and get behind and we asked our team to hold leadership accountable and it was really this belief of if we want to carry out our vision of healthy rural communities healthcare revolutionized and our mission of advancing a new model for community health to thrive we need to first start with creating a healthy work environment that will then give us the best chance to Accomplish our second pillar, which is trusting patient relationships. If we're building trusting relationships with our patients and our communities, then we have the opportunity to improve health outcomes, which is our third pillar. But we can't just jump straight to we want to launch a new program to keep people out of the ED or better manage patients with diabetes. Health outcomes, if we're not building trusting relationships or taking care of the people that are tasked with showing up for these people. And then our fourth pillar is financial sustainability. And we feel like if we can align organizational and system forces and be successful in those first three pillars, then financial sustainability will happen. You know, we're ahead of the game with where healthcare is going based on our research.
0: You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. I see the challenge very clearly in that it cannot be any different from rural healthcare anywhere else in the world, whether that's in the UK, where I've worked as a rural doctor, or whether here in Australia, in some of the remote outback areas of this country. And I'm going to put them to you, and I'd like some comment on those. The the clear challenges are the tyranny of distance. So often you're dealing with patients who are many many miles away from the centre of excellence where potentially their problem could be best managed in terms of medical science. So medical science has been quite difficult because it places the resources in places where it's hard to get at if you happen to be living in rural Alaska or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. that far away so that's number one the tyranny of distance from the patient perspective from the practitioner perspective you're right the key thing is to give those practitioners the wherewithal and the desire to live in those communities far away and to think about the answer to the question where will the kids go to school where will we get access to the things that we've enjoyed when we lived in metropolitan areas, if that's where they've come from, in terms of lifestyle. Where are we going to be going to the theatre or whatever other thing they're doing? Or are we going to have time off to go walking up the hills, which is something we enjoy doing? Given the workload is going to be quite heavy, given that the number of doctors who are serving in this community Is going to be limited by dint of the fact that they are an expensive resource to bring into the area. So, from those you can unpack them whichever way you like. Firstly, the tyranny of distance and the impact both on the patient and on the practitioner. How did you conceptualise this in your development of your business?
1: Yeah, those are great questions and challenges that we face. And when we spent We spent about two years initially researching healthcare and talking to a wide range of stakeholders from rural family med physicians to mental health agencies to our health policy advisors to the governor of Oregon, John Kitzhaber, who was a physician at the time, to hospital execs, talking to rural community members. And we knew that recruitment and retention would be one of the most crucial components to carrying out our our mission and creating successful business. And so we approach that through the lens, through the strategy of a workplace well-being. And if we can design an organization where clinicians feel cared for and have the autonomy to do what they feel is best for their patients and community, that's going to be a more attractive place to work. And we validated that over and over again, talking to rural docs, urban doctors who said, if insurance companies are running our practices and we're tired of being on the hamster wheel of having to see a patient every 15 minutes. We didn't go to medical school to be in this system with so much bureaucracy. And so we, we wanted to design a model that directly addressed that part of the broken system that doesn't address what you brought up around the tyranny of distance and just the the environmental challenge of people wanting to live in rural communities and bringing resources to rural communities and so one way that we're addressing that challenge is through telehealth and the pandemic helped us really invest in telehealth. We had telehealth video and phone capabilities and appointments prior to the pandemic, but the pandemic has really accelerated our realization of how this could really open up doors. And it also served extremely valuable when we had one of our rural health clinics burn down the clinic structure in a wildfire in Oregon two years ago. And our clinicians at our other sites could continue to serve, provide mental health services, manage medications, provide visits. There is a challenge in rural communities of broadband access, which I think is the big elephant in the room of getting quality broadband the last mile to people's homes. So it's not just two or three sites in the community that have it, but consistency across where people are living. That's a challenge that we're we're working on. But I think the future of telehealth is huge in rural communities, and we've implemented a telepsychiatry service across our four clinics with one psychiatric nurse practitioner. We've implemented telespecialty services with Kaiser Permanente specialists who are available to people with all types of insurance at Orchid Clinics. So we essentially subcontract out their specialists for certain amount of hours to support our patients so they can offer direct consultations. And that's been, we just launched that a couple months ago, but I think there's a lot of potential there. So telehealth is going to be a large part of the picture. And I think we've actually learned that from the patient experience and and clinician experience, telehealth can add a lot of value and people appreciate it. And I think right now, across our four clinic sites and our 10 or so clinicians, most of our clinicians spend one or two days working from home doing telehealth visits. And they get to, you know, spend more time with their kids or be at home more and enjoy more of a work-life balance that the rest of the world gets to enjoy in a lot of industries. I always said, like, you know, how come in healthcare there's just no prioritization or urgency for team member well-being like there is in other industries it's just this like built-in expectation that you're in it to serve and so therefore that service needs to always come first the patients need to always come first and I truly believe that that's like Amazon saying the customers always come first and paying their workers the lowest minimum wage and having terrible conditions. And I don't believe in that as the future of business and the world we want to live in. And I think in healthcare it's very different and with different intentions. But we've actually maybe fallen into a, a similar mindset that hasn't been healthy for the the field. And I, I want to at ORCID, we talk about this quite a bit of, we need to put our, our people first. And I may have strayed away from your question just a tiny bit there. But I think telehealth is a great solution and will be a big part of the, the picture. And then designing an organization. And in rural communities, we need to do this even better than other organizations, because recruitment and retention is such a challenge. And so by necessity, it's forced us to create an organization that is really attractive to work at. And we've had a a really successful time recruiting incredible clinicians, physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs to ORCID, especially recently as we've gained more clarity in who we are and our four pillar framework and how we operationalize that in practice.
0: The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration Amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. How did you address the other issue around the needs of those clinicians in terms of their families? Are we saying that the education of their children would be by telehealth so they could stay in the communities longer? What about the idea that they may actually want to be physically somewhere different at some time in order to enjoy all that life has to offer. How did you address that?
1: I would be honest and say we haven't figured that out. I think we've committed to changing the narrative around rural communities from a risk-based perspective to a strengths-based one, from rural community health and the people in rural communities to what it means to live and raise a family in in rural communities. I I was saying I grew up in a small town and my family liked the value that brought to them. And for a while until maybe five years ago, I especially as a kid, I wished I lived in Seattle or San Francisco or something, you know, was so ready to get out of the small town. But now I really appreciate what it meant to grow up in a rural community and the connection to nature and the outdoors and the more busy the world gets and I think people are realizing especially with the pandemic the value of reconnecting with with nature and with a slower pace and with you know health when we talk about health and well-being I, I do think rural communities actually offer a lot of advantages over cities I live in Portland, Oregon, disclaimer, a city of about a million people. But I I love taking my camper van out to our four rural communities and camping out at the hot springs and hiking and just soaking it in. So but there is that challenge of still a lot of people want to be in a in a city. I think that the other big component and challenge for us has been recruiting clinicians to rural communities, oftentimes it's not the clinician that has a hard time adjusting, but their family, their partner. There's a lack of good jobs oftentimes, and so it's this larger economic situation and, and that can occur in rural communities. We view our role as not just a deliverer of care, a clinic, but really a foundation for rural economic vitality and a sense of community and I hope that we can take a leading role in that.
0: Thank you for your honesty. And you're right, you haven't figured it out, because no one in the world has figured it out. Perhaps one of the answers, and I'm, I'll put this to you in terms of the growth of the organization that you're now leading, is to draw your clinicians from within those rural communities. So somebody who has had a rural upbringing, who then goes to med school, and then, then comes back to that rural community with a partner who perhaps also has rural roots, that may be part of the solution. Because as you say, for many people, they're doing the kind of things that are to do with nature and all the rest of it is born out of the warm feelings they get when they think about their childhood.
1: I completely agree with that being a huge opportunity and thinking about, yeah, how do we work upstream and We've identified partnerships with our local school district as a really crucial part of our mission. And I think part of it is to show students that there's this great opportunity and career pathway out there for those that might be interested. And the more we can work upstream and start to, like you're mentioning, build a pipeline in our communities. We haven't yet launched any kind of rural residency program. We're not quite large enough at our clinics, I don't think. But we we do have students rotate out for four-week rotations to our sites. And we've been able to hire some of those students back that have rotated out. We also, at some of our sites, we have clinicians that do live in the nearby city and decide to commute 45 minutes or an hour along a beautiful scenic drive along a river up into the mountains in their electric car. And they get to decompress from the day on their way home. And they've chosen that due to the work environment and the the type of organization that ORCID has become and the priority on relationships and caregiver well-being. And our clinicians at ORCID, so we've develop this model to really try to challenge the status quo. And, and it starts from a shifting from this control-focused ethos of bureaucracy and hierarchy and centralizing everything and command and control to trust and autonomy and empowering local teams and really this belief of administration as a service that can be pulled in versus administration on top of the clinicians power over. And so we've removed quite a bit of the power over built in hierarchy with our back end admin teams. And they're really viewed as their role is to remove bureaucracy and administrative burden from the clinics and be pulled in to support with ideas that our clinics have come up with the belief that our clinics know what's best. There's a bank in sweden that came up with this term and said our branches are our company they know what's best that's how we deliver value that's how we carry out our mission and in healthcare i think we've gotten away from that with these this trend towards mergers and acquisitions and getting larger and larger i think we need to move away from that and the Future of health is local and independent, kind of like going back to the old days, but with the support of modern medicine and and technology and population health tools and data capabilities. But kind of going back to that relationship. And so when we've designed our model from control focus to a people positive operating system, from bureaucracy and tons of quantitative metrics, mostly focused on. Profits to a very small number of metrics based on those four pillars, starting with how are we doing? How are our people doing? That's what we look at as the dashboard in our car. Like we think about our metrics as you're driving down the highway and you look at the dashboard. If a light comes on, it needs some attention. Fill gas, change the oil. If pillar one is in the red or yellow with our company health dashboard, we need to give that some attention. If our patients, we get about a thousand patients tell us how we're doing every year. If they're saying that they're not feeling respected or trust or that we're taking the time to listen to what matters to them, we need to give some attention there. And so we've developed a smaller number of metrics. The same then our clinics look at the same metrics as our executive team. Um, And then I think localized to build relationship versus centralized to increase efficiency. And so we have 60-minute new patient visits and 30-minute follow-up visits. And our clinicians, in an eight-hour shift, they can expect to be see patients for about six of those hours, so 75% billable hours, 25% for charting, care coordination, inbox management, project work, community health work, walk with your doc, meetings with the school, with the goal of not bringing charting home or inboxes, trying to get in early to do that. But really, if you're working an eight-hour shift, six hours are seeing patients. And then in that six-hour shift, our financial sustainability measure, our pillar four is to see about 11 patients in that six-hour shift. And so we've tried to build a model to align some of these these factors. But really putting, I think if you don't have a order of priority if you just say we want to achieve the quadruple aim and all's treated equal you're just not going to do any one of them really well so we've really decided we need to start out by focusing on the most important thing which is taking care of our caregivers giving them autonomy and trust and trying to create an operational system to support them
0: to put this then in context of the communities that you are now serving with healthcare. Those communities could not exist without the healthcare being in the area. Because at the end of the day, you, know, you cannot be a farmer and not have access to healthcare. So in many ways, you are part of that community in a very integral way. How has the community embraced this idea and how have the community interacted with healthcare to make sure that your success is their mm. success?
1: When we first started having conversations with community members, we, Oak Ridge, our first community, was we looked at data from the Office of Rural Health, a hotspotter data based on zip code around health disparities and access to care, and Oak Ridge was the highest on the list. And we got out there 45 minutes from Eugene, the nearest city with hospitals, and started hearing stories about people that cut their arm with their chainsaw and they refused to go into town or their partner made them, they had their arm out the window while they forced them and they were resisting every second of it or people that were trying to make enough money to to feed their families and they had to take a day off from work to bring their kids into their appointment and they got let go for that. Trying to drive because if they had a car or if they had to take the bus, it's just twice a day from Oak Ridge to Eugene. And so they'd miss a whole day of work. We heard story after story like this, and it really hit home, like you're saying. And people welcomed us with open arms and said, please, we know you're 23 years old and we we think you're crazy, probably. But if you can open a clinic here for us, we, we want you here. And it was a good environment to be in as young entrepreneurs to learn the ropes a little bit of, I I think everyone wanted us to be successful. There wasn't competition, there was the hospital, the insurance companies, everyone was kind of behind us. If you guys can make this work. And we were told you're gonna have to see 25 visits a day. There's no way you can see 12 visits, 11 visits a day and make it financially. You can't spend an hour with your patients in the way our billing model works in the United States, but we designed a model and we went to our payers and we said, hey, and we looked at data from these rural communities and said these three thousand people in Oak Ridge are going to the ED two to three times the average patient of yours, and that ed utilization where they're using ED for primary care services we have data on that and it's costing you millions of dollars a year, people in Oak Ridge, to pay for that. And so pay us to keep people out of the ED. And we, surprisingly, we got some buy-in from some of the more local payers. The the smaller and more local of payers, the more open to partnerships and piloting a new process. And I, I will repeat that as a theme that I believe strongly in is this decentralizing of healthcare and and localizing of healthcare and i think that a single payer model is is needed in the united states it's not going to solve all the issues as I'm, as you know probably way better than me understanding different countries healthcare challenges and what's working but single payer with a localized way to support care delivery based on what works in communities. And Oregon's done that a little bit with the coordinated care model for lower income individuals and government workers. And that's about 40% of our community is on Medicaid. And the CCO is this local kind of regional authority that has funding to try to design healthy solutions to this pretty small population that they're responsible for caring for and that's been I think that's been a pretty effective model we've appreciated that
0: I want to feed back to you some of the things that I've been taking notes as we spoke I think your rural background is a major advantage no question about it you get it you get what it's like to live in a place that has 2,000 people and where you have to make the best of what's around you in fact enjoy what's all around you so that's the first thing second thing i think is your age clearly you've used your age as an advantage where others might say it's a disadvantage because uh, you don't have the experience but you have this commitment and energy to learning and i think that's what has made a huge difference i think your focus on the well-being of The carers, those who serve in those communities, is laudable and is not done well in many, many other parts of the world where they're now reaping the disadvantages of not having that focus because people don't stay where they are not welcomed and where they don't feel a part of it. Your focus on entrepreneurship uh, and the energy you bring to that and the can-do culture, I think, is what makes this a remarkable story and as I was, as you were speaking i was thinking well if they can do it in this way in rural areas they can do it anywhere and that is the start of the solution to the healthcare crisis not only in the u.s but around the world congratulations on all that you've achieved it's been a delight bringing your story and your passion to our listeners and I hope we'll have another conversation very soon.
1: It's been a pleasure to meet you, Moyes, and thank you for this opportunity. And I'm excited to get get this message out there and I'm very open to hearing from from people that want to look inside the hood of Orchid Health. Anything we're doing, we're, we're happy to share and hope to influence the system.
0: So. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journal of healthdesign.com.